I'm going to pray again and then I'm going to continue our sermon series in the Gospel of Matthew that we've been going through and we're going to talk about forgiveness this morning. So a wonderful topic, a wonderful passage to read together. So let's pray one more time. Lord, I, I pray as we read your word this morning and as I preach, you would speak to our hearts and our minds that you would teach us of your great mercy and forgiveness that you have poured out in our lives. And you would also teach us to be merciful and forgiving as well, Heavenly Father. Look, thank you for the forgiveness we have received. May we forgive one another and others according to the teaching of Jesus Christ in the passage of scripture we're about to read. So Lord, I pray you would come and talk to us, speak to us, move in our midst during this time now. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to begin my sermon with a story about my time at university um, over a decade ago now, so it feels like a long time ago I was at university and um, I, was, I was fairly fortunate. I took a student loan at university but also my parents gave me some money to get through my time at university and while I was at university I considered myself to be a fairly frugal person. Uh, I didn't get drunk while I was at university because I was a Christian and so I used to go out with the hockey mates and um, sort of join in a little bit and then go home when it got too much and just drink a pint of coke with them, that kind of thing. Um, I didn't even bother to buy my textbooks often while I was at university because I just thought I can get them from the library and, and at times I was a little bit lazy on my history course, I must confess. So I, 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 I thought I had a decent amount of money and I thought I was li living pretty frugally, certainly compared to some of the people on my course who ran out of money in term one. I certainly thought I was looking after myself fairly well financially. I thought my bank balance was healthy in my first year at university. But it, we enter into term three and I get a phone call from my parents and they say, hey Duncan, we've just had a letter from the bank that says you are in your overdraft, you have overspent. And my parents are both accountants. So they're wonderful Christians, but my parents are both accountants. And um, they weren't very impressed, to say the least. And um, they were like asking me what I'd spent my money on, and I wasn't even sure what I'd spent my money on. Um, so I didn't know how this had happened. And of course, when you go into your overdraft, I got fined 100 pounds. So I don't understand that from banks. Like you're running out of money, and they make the situation even worse by putting, giving you a fine. Um, I thought my bank balance was in the black, but actually my bank balance was in the red. I thought I was looking after my money and doing well, but actually I had no real idea what was going on financially and I'd actually spent too much money and not been very clever. I want to ask you a question this morning. I don't want to ask you about what, how your bank balance is doing financially. I'm not interested in that, but I want you to examine your moral bank balance with God for a moment. Are you in the black or are you in the red? Are you managing your moral finances frugally or are you making mistakes? I wonder where you would put yourself in terms of your relationship with God. How are you doing morally? And if your, if your, if your morality was a bank balance, would it be black or would it be red? Now I'm going to read to you from Matthew chapter 18. As we consider that question, I'm going to read Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 to 35. You'll, be, you'll remember in previous weeks we've been talking about sin and how as a church we need to be honest with one another. We need to be able to speak into each other's lives and grow in holiness. 
And I am encouraged that in the midst of a chapter that seems to be about sin and discipline, there is also a passage all about forgiveness that we're about to read together. So let's read Matthew 18, verses 21 to 35. And the words are on the screen behind me. Thank you so much, Gareth. Peter came up and said to Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to the master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servants, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his, oh, sorry, until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Peter comes to Jesus. Apologies for my burp in the middle. I don't think it's ever happened to me before. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. So Peter comes to Jesus with a question. How many times should I forgive my brother? Peter, that other disciple, John, he is really irritating. He was reading scripture the other day and he burped in the middle of it. How many times should I forgive him? He is, he's driving me nuts. He keeps moaning at me. He keeps insulting me. That disciple, John, is infuriating. I've forgiven him seven times. Do I, do I have to do it anymore? Surely after seven times of forgiveness, I should stop forgiving and just treat him like the horrible disciple that he is. I don't think John was a horrible disciple, by the way. I'm imagining this, this moment where Peter and John are falling out over something. Surely, Jesus, says Peter, I shouldn't forgive him eight times. And of course, Jesus responds by saying, no, 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 Peter. Not seven times, but 77 times. And as we go through the passage, we'll realise their significance to those numbers. And what Jesus is really saying is, you just keep forgiving and forgiving and forgiving and forgiving and forgiving. That's what the atmosphere is to be like within the church. We will make mistakes. We will do things wrong. But we forgive one another over and over and over again. For we have received great mercy from God. Therefore, we show great mercy to one another. Now, Jesus tells a parable and a story to demonstrate his point. 
and we're going to unpack this story that Jesus tells as we learn more about the forgiveness we have received and the forgiveness we should offer to others. And so the first thing that I would like all of you to see in the story that we read is that you are the servant who could not pay the master at the beginning of the story. You and me are the servant who could not pay the master in the story. I just want you to consider for a moment what you owe God. I wonder whether you thought about ever owing God. How much do you owe God? Well, let's start to unpack this a bit. God created you. God gave you life. You wouldn't exist without God in heaven. Everything good in your life is a gift from God. Every single thing. The fact that you have a father and a mother, they were a gift from God to you, to give you life. All your family members are gifts from God. The food that you eat is a gift from God. The shelter, the home that you live in is a gift from God. The air that you breathe, every single molecule of oxygen that goes into your body to grant you life has been created by God and is given to you in order that you might live. Any talents that you have, any skills that you use, even the skills that you use to earn money in your job, You know, whatever you do, whether you're a great administrator and that's how you earn money, that was a gift given to you by God so that you might earn a living and have the money that you need to survive. Everything, every good gift in your life is from God. If only we were mindful of all the good, the many thousands of good things we have received from God rather than the one or two hardships. We, we, we sometimes focus only on the hardships. I'm not saying we shouldn't pray about the hardships and know the hardships, but we shouldn't focus on the, the one thing that's hard at the expense of the thousands of good things that we have received as Christians. And surely if we, if we were like that, if we focused on the thousands of good things that God had given to us, surely we would be people who burst with praise and thanksgiving, even during the darkest moments of our lives. So I want to ask you that question are you someone who concentrates on all the wonderful gifts that you have received from God even when times are hard and difficult so how much do we owe God well the answer is everything how much do we owe God absolutely everything do you know what Jesus said the greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul with all your mind and with all your strength. And do you know what Jesus is teaching us? He's saying, love God with everything that you are. You know, my mind, my strength, my heart, my soul. Jesus is saying, love God with everything because God has given us everything. So we love, the greatest commandment is to love God with everything that we are. But this isn't the story of our lives, is it? Do we truly love God with everything that we are, every moment, every second of the day, which every second is a gift from God as well? In fact, all of us in this room have at one time thought nothing about God at all, given him no glory, no worship, no thoughts at all. Remember to that time before you were a Christian and think about the mind, how much mindfulness of God you had in your life at one time, You thought nothing of God, even though he'd given you everything. 
It's like a child who ignores, neglects, even hates their father and mother. I'm, I'm, I'm using a metaphor imagining a really good father and mother who have given their child everything that they need. Imagine that child then completely ignores and neglects, even hates their father and their mother. At one point, all of us were there in our relationship with God. Every single one of us. Not only have we failed to love God with everything that we are, we've also disobeyed his commands, his other commands, the instructions that he gives, his good instructions that he gives for how we should live our lives. My hypothesis this morning is this, that every single one of us can think of at least one thing that we have done in our lives that we are utterly ashamed of. I mean, I'm not going to do this, but imagine I said, guys, we're going to form a long queue at the front of the room and all of you are going to stand and tell us the worst thing you've ever done in your life. I wonder how many of you would be able to do it. I think there are a lot of people who would not have the confidence to do, would not want to do that. They'd be so ashamed of what they had done. But even if we could all have, even if we all could stand up here and tell one another the worst things we had done, we would have a very long list of sins and ways in which we had disobeyed God and dishonoured him and not loved him with everything that we are. Do you know, Jesus said the second greatest commandment is this. The greatest commandment is to love God with everything. The second greatest commandment is this, love others as yourself. And the truth is, we haven't just failed to love God with everything that we are. We've also failed to love one another. I imagine in that list of things that we've done, there'd be many unkind words, unkind things, ways in which we'd really hurt other people with our actions that we'd done. I know that the, the really hard thing is when I examine myself, probably, the, I mean, I love my wife to bits, like Rachel's not here and I'm missing her. She's up north looking after her parents who aren't well at the moment. I miss her. I love her. But the truth is... Probably the person I hurt the most is the one that I spend the most time with, the one that I love the most. That's, that says something about who I am as a person. That says something about how I've done in terms of loving God with everything and love, loving others as myself. That if I think about my life, the person I sin against most is my wife, the one I love the most. That says something about how much forgiveness I need and how much mercy I need. And I imagine, I imagine we're all in a similar boat. We do things even to the people we love the most to hurt them and to not love them as we love ourselves. Can I just highlight one way in which I think we as individuals and we as humanity have failed to love one another? I want to highlight the sin of greed this morning. We store up wealth and possessions way beyond what we need, way beyond. When there are many in Fareham, in the United Kingdom and around the world who go without I really, I believe, I'm, talk, I'm preaching to myself here. We do nothing or we do very little compared to what we could do to love others, to provide for people who are in dire need. In other words, what I'm saying to you, what I'm saying to myself is our moral bank balances are in the red. Our moral bank balances are in the red. We have massive overdrafts. And finds way more than £100 that we need to pay to God for the things that we have done wrong. We have huge debt towards God. We owe him everything and we have not given him everything. Our moral bank balances are in, in dire need in the red. 
If you disagree, maybe you're not a Christian and you're hearing this and you're thinking, no, I just disagree with this. I'm, I'm a good person. My moral bank balance is, is really good. I'm doing well. You're doing what I did at university, I think. You're thinking, you're comparing yourselves to the people around you and going, I'm doing all right, I'm doing okay. I'm a better person than my next door neighbour. I'm a better person than the politicians I see on the news. I'm a better person. So I'm relatively, I'm doing all right. But actually, whose opinion matters in this world? I would argue it's the God who created us and gave us everything we have. Morality isn't about comparing ourselves to the person who lives next door or the person sat next to you in the room. I really hope you wouldn't do that and start comparing yourself to the person you sat next to right now. Rather, I want us to ask, what does God say about goodness? What What does Jesus say about the commands of God? And how do I stack up to those? And if we are honest with ourselves when we do that, we realise that we are in debt. This is a teaching that is throughout the Bible. No one is righteous, not even one. Paul writes in Romans 3 verse 10, quoting David in Psalm 14. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3 verse 23. And Jesus himself said this, no one is good but God alone. He says that in Mark 10 verse 18. All of us owe God a great debt. We have huge moral, uh, moral overdrafts that we will never be able to repay. We are the servant in this parable who comes to the master and he owes a humongous debt to this master, one that he will never be able to repay. Yet there is very, very good news contained within this parable for all of us who though we are in debt to God, we are told something glorious and wonderful. And so my second point this morning is to focus on the merciful master in this parable, who is our God. In verse 26, the servant falls on his knees and implores the master, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. You know, what the servant says is actually pretty foolish. I don't think he's ever going to come to a place where he's able to pay back the full debt that he owes to this master. Yet that's what he's saying. Give me another six months, please. Come on, just I can, I can do it in the six months. But the truth is, in six months time, he still won't be in a place where he can pay back the debt that he owes. But look at what the master in the story does. He does even more than the servant asks. The servant asks um, for more time. But the master releases him completely from the debt that he owes. He forgives him completely for all that he owes to God. God treats everybody who asks for mercy in the same way as this servant in the story. This is what it is to become a Christian. It's to fall on your knees and say, God, I have sinned. I've done things wrong. I'm not in a place to pay back the debt that I owe. And God says, My son, Jesus Christ, died for you on the cross. He took your debt upon himself. Jesus said, let me pay your debt. I will take your debt. You take my credit. All the righteous deeds that Jesus did. Jesus was the only one. No one is righteous, not even one, says Romans. But there was one, Jesus Christ, who was righteous. Everybody else is in the unrighteous category. But Jesus Christ was righteous. He did every good deed. He he used every second of his life to worship and love his father in heaven. Everything that he was given by his father, he gave back to his father in worship and obedience. He was righteous in every single way. And Jesus says, let's do a swap. Let's 
swap our bank balances over. You take my millions and billions of righteousness in my bank account and I'll take your huge, massive debt. And so Christians who call to God for mercy, who believe in Jesus Christ, have their overdraft paid off by our saviour, Jesus Christ. Isn't it glorious? Isn't it amazing? We receive the righteousness of Christ. And Jesus suffers the penalty and the punishment for someone who is in great moral debt. He dies a sinner's death upon the cross as a substitute in our place. So while I've said this morning that our bank balances are in the red, and it's true that for each one of us, Our bank balances were once in the red before God. But if you're a Christian this morning, if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you are rich. You are gloriously rich because Jesus has given you his righteousness. He's he's given you all his good and moral deeds. And so when we come to pray to the Father, we don't come as though we are... We don't come as though we are sinners and therefore God can't hear our prayers. No, we come with confidence into the presence of our King. We sing him praises. We know that he always loves to receive us as the master receives this servant. He he receives us in mercy and so we come and pray. And I just want to encourage you, if you're a Christian, never feel that something that you've done is stopping you come into the presence of your Father in prayer. Sometimes we can get to that place where we think, I've had a rubbish day, I've messed up big time, I didn't do my quiet time in the morning, I haven't read my Bible, I haven't prayed, I've been greedy all day, I haven't done anything to help anybody. And we can think, well, because I'm in this place, I can't come to the Father in prayer. And and so we ignore him, we wander away from him, we spend time out of his presence. But the truth is, our God is a merciful master a glorious father and even if we've had the worst day because we believe in grace when we come into the presence of the father he receives us as his child imagine a father who just loves to take his child up in his arms that is what how our father in heaven treats us he doesn't treat us as our sins deserve but he treats us as though we are we have the righteousness of christ that we are forgiven in his sight that we have millions of billions in our moral bank balances Isn't the mercy of God so good, the grace of God so, so good? If you're not yet a Christian, I just say to you today, call out for this mercy and this forgiveness in your life. There is no better decision that you can make. There is no better choice that you can make. And God will receive you and he will answer your prayers for mercy. And he will say, my son Jesus died for you upon the cross. Receive forgiveness, receive righteousness. Come and be my son or daughter forever and ever. Christian, remember that your debt has been paid. Do not take mercy for granted. Don't become proud or judgmental, but be overwhelmed with gratitude at what Christ has done for you and the mercy that you have received from the Father. So we've seen that we are the servant in the story and we've seen that God is the master in the story. And so the third thing we ought to think about is forgiving others from the heart. Given the amazing mercy that God has shown to us, how many times should we forgive others? Seven times? 77 times? Or over and over and over again? How many times has God shown mercy to us? I know I've sinned more than 77 times in my life. So should we show mercy and forgiveness to others who have hurt us. Of course, this isn't what happens in the story. 
The servant leaves his master and immediately seizes a fellow servant, demanding a much smaller sum of money. I wonder whether you've ever done that. You've prayed on a Sunday morning for forgiveness to God and you've celebrated the forgiveness you have received and then you've gone home and failed to forgive someone else and treated them not like God has treated you, but like they need, they need to do much better than you are doing in your own life. Just as God has forgiven you, so should you forgive others who do wrong to you. This is such a critical application in the Christian faith that it's even contained in the Lord's Prayer. Do you know when Jesus taught us to pray, he said, forgive us. We're praying to God, Father, forgive us as we forgive those who sin against us. In some translations of the Bible, it even uses the word debts in that part of the Lord's Prayer. Um, Sometimes you go to perhaps a slightly more traditional church and they recite the Lord's Prayer and they use the word debts. And I always stumble over that bit because I say sins rather than debts and I'm not quite in tune with everybody else in the room. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Forgiveness isn't just lip service either. Have a look at verse 35. So also my father will do to you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. Forgiveness isn't just lip service. It's something that comes from the heart. And this is why forgiveness can sometimes be extremely difficult because it comes from the heart. It must come from the heart. And this is why unforgiveness is such a terrible thing in our lives because it afflicts the heart. If you hold on, if you fail to forgive people, if you hold on to unforgiveness, bitterness will grow in your heart. Your heart will be afflicted by this thing that you're holding on to that God would ask you to let go of. Brothers, sisters, we must forgive one another. We must forgive those who have hurt us. Otherwise, we're doing ourselves damage. And you might be sat there thinking, Duncan, it's just so hard. You don't know the pain that I've gone through because someone sinned against me. Maybe it's been months or years of clinging to something, clinging to unforgiveness because of the pain and the hurt that someone has caused you. Maybe it was yesterday and you're saying it's too soon for me to forgive. I'm not ready to forgive yet. I need time to process. Or maybe it's just been a long time and it's hard to let go of unforgiveness. I want to say two things if that's you. If you're saying that forgiving someone is too hard, I want to say two things. Firstly, remember the mercy of God. Stop thinking about the thing that you can't forgive and start thinking about the mercy that you have received from God. Think not upon the hundred pounds that you are owed, but think upon the thousands of pounds that have been forgiven by God in your life. Remember Jesus on the cross, the Saviour, loving you, saving you, being afflicted in pain and agony in his crucifixion because he loved you. And as you focus on what Christ has done for you, the pain that he endured for you, the forgiveness that has been poured into your life. From the heart, dwell upon those things and let that flow into forgiveness out to others around you. The second thing I want to say to you, if you're saying it's too hard, is this. God changes hearts. God changes hearts. Do not try to muster forgiveness. Don't close your eyes and go, come on, come on, Duncan, forgive this person. I've got to try really hard. No, know that God changes hearts and ask for the help of the Holy Spirit. 
This is one of the things he is there for. This is one of the reasons why God pours out the Holy Spirit into the hearts of every Christian is so that when we come up against things like this, when we're struggling to forgive, we can say, Holy Spirit, I know you are here. Help me. Change me. Start to reform my heart so that I can forgive this person who has done me wrong. Remember the mercy of God. Focus on what he has done for you and then pray for the help of the Holy Spirit. Forgiveness isn't done in your own strength. It's done with the help of the strength of God. And so open yourself to the power of the Holy Spirit. And I believe as we focus on God's mercy and as we wait upon the Holy Spirit, I believe God will do a mighty work in our hearts, healing and helping us. And in a moment, we're going to have a time of prayer to respond in this way, to wait upon the power of the Holy Spirit, to help us forgive if you're struggling to forgive. But before we do, let me just make one final point. The numbers 7 and 77 in verses 21 and 22 are significant. And there's reasons why Jesus says not seven times, but 77 times. And Jesus is referencing Genesis chapter 4. I don't know if you know the story at the beginning of the Bible, but God creates a good world. He puts Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve disobey God. And as they disobey God, death and sickness and sin come into the world and ruin the good world which God has created. And so in Genesis 3, God says, because you have done this thing, you need to leave the Garden of Eden. You can't eat from the tree of eternal life because it would be a disaster if eternal life was mixed in with disobedience and sin. That wouldn't be a good eternal life. That would be a difficult eternal life life and God came up with a plan so that when we do enter into the new heavens and the new earth we'll be made perfect as we see Christ our saviour in glory we'll be forgiven our sin and made perfect and so the eternity we long for and look for in the future will be perfect and will be glorious it'll be better than the garden of Eden so God sends them out of the garden of Eden then what happens in Genesis 4 sins enter the world deaths enter the world the first story in Genesis chapter 4 is that Cain gets jealous of his brother and murders his brother Abel. And there's a punishment associated with murder. It's right and just for God to punish a sin like that. And so God curses Cain in judgment. And Cain says, my punishment is so great. I can't deal with the curse that you've placed upon my life. Surely, as I wander, someone's going to kill me and put me out. So this curse no longer is on my life. I'm just going to die. And God says, no. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. That's what God says to Cain. Vengeance sevenfold upon anyone who kills you. And then later on in Genesis chapter 4, another man comes along called Lamech. And he also murders someone. And do you know what Lamech says? If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, Lamech's revenge is seventy-sevenfold. Genesis chapter 4 is a passage about unforgiveness, is a passage about murder, it's a passage about judgment, it's a passage about vengeance. You know, Cain didn't forgive his, Abel offers a greater sacrifice and Cain gets jealous of Abel. And although Abel hasn't done anything wrong, what Cain needed to do was essentially forgive his brother for the hurt. Like he was upset. And so he just needed to let go of it and show forgiveness. But instead, he takes vengeance into his own hands and kills his brother. Do you see, therefore, what Jesus is saying in Matthew chapter 18? The trauma and the difficulty and the, 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 the devastating, awful state of the world in Genesis 4 
is being undone in the power of the mercy of the Father. And the mess and the vengeance and the judgment of Genesis 4, that is not how the church needs to act. That's not how Christians need to act. No, we need to act like Matthew chapter 18. Instead of taking vengeance, we forgive one another. Instead of cursing each other, we bless even those who have hurt us and done us wrong. And so this is the start, the way the church will treat one another, the forgiveness amongst people within the church. This is the way that Genesis 4 starts to be undone. It's undone by Jesus Christ upon the cross as he shows and wins forgiveness for all of us. But the church reflects this amazing forgiveness. And so in our midst, we're not living in a Genesis 4 church. I really hope not. We are not living in the Genesis 4 church. We're living in a Matthew 18 church where we forgive each other. We love each other. People do us wrong. People make mistakes and they do it seven times and we still forgive the eighth time. They do it 77 times and we still forgive the 78th time because God has forgiven us over and over and over and over and over. I'm not going to say this 77 times but I'm going to get close. Over and over and over again. God forgives us and shows us mercy. So must we also live that way, forgiving one another, being reconciled to each other. Not just ignoring sin but having conversations with one another and saying, hey this is hurtful but it's okay, I've forgiven you and be and I mean that's where true depth of relationship and friendship really comes from my marriage gets stronger in a sense when I go to Rachel and say I'm so sorry I've totally messed up again and Rachel goes it's okay I love you Duncan you're forgiven and vice versa our marriage becomes stronger and stronger and so will the church if we are forgiving people we will have strong relationships we will be a family truly reflecting the glory and the mercy of God And that's the kind of church I want to be a part of. I know that there are people in here who are great at forgiving me and great at forgiving one another. And I'm so, so grateful for that because every time we forgive, we're undoing the mess of Genesis 4 and following the instructions of Jesus in Matthew chapter 18. The forgiveness of God towards you is wonderful and it changes us so that we can become forgiving people and show forgiveness to others. But it's also transforming the world. The forgiveness within the church transforms the world because the Genesis 4 was the world was in a mess and the church showing the light of Christ in the way they forgive one another begins to affect the world as more and more people come and hear about the mercy of God, receive that mercy and then show mercy to one another. So will you stand with me? And I'm going to pray for you. And we We're just going to respond. We're just going to respond. And of course, there are two ways to respond to this message. The first one is to just be filled with gratitude at the mercy and forgiveness that is available in Christ to all who believe in him. To be filled with worship and wonder that however many times we sin, God will still forgive us. That's the first response. And the second response is then to pray that we would be able to forgive others. And I pray that during this time, there would be a release from those who've clung to unforgiveness for many months and years. I want to ask you, do you hear the sound of the Holy Spirit rush? and the rivers of our hearts being redirected away from unforgiveness into forgiveness. Can you hear the waves of mercy crashing against our hard, unforgiving hearts in this moment? God is here to move mightily. And so if, if, you, if you want to receive, if you want to respond, I encourage you to hold out your hands as though God is moving and changing and affecting our hearts. Heavenly Father, You are a merciful master. You are so, so good. We owed you thousands of pounds, a debt we could not repay. We were in the red big time. 
And though we might have fooled ourselves into thinking that we could repay the debt one day, we realised actually there was no way of saving ourselves. We could not rescue ourselves from our overdrafts and from our debts. And so, Lord, we thank you for the mercy of Jesus Christ. Thank you for his love, that he loved us so much. He went to the cross to die for us, taking our sin upon himself. Lord, thank you for that amazing act of mercy, that amazing act of love. And we thank you that, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, you forgive us for all the things that we have done wrong. I pray that every Christian heart in this room would know that forgiveness so gloriously and wonderfully now in this moment. We rejoice, we worship, we celebrate for you are a God of mercy. And now Lord we know that you are the one who changes hearts. I want to pray for anyone who's clinging on to unforgiveness, maybe something that's been there for months or years or maybe something that's very recent that is hurting Lord God. I pray Father, pour out your spirit. May he move in our midst. May he change our hearts. Move us into that place of forgiveness. I pray bring release, bring healing. Take away bitterness against people who have done us harm, Lord God. I pray just as we have received mercy over and over and over again, may we be people who don't just forgive seven times but 77 times, Lord God. Make us a forgiving people. I I pray for us as a church, as a family, Lord God, all families, wind each other up and and get things wrong at times, Lord God. But I pray that this church would be marked by forgiveness for one another because we have received such amazing forgiveness from you. I pray if there is people in the room who are not yet Christians, who do not yet know this forgiveness of which I've spoken, Lord God, I pray that you would move and, and just speak to this person, Lord God. Say that you are here and say that this mercy is available to all. And I pray that they would make a decision of faith today. Come to believe in Jesus, his death upon the cross, his resurrection from the dead, his ascension into heaven. Believe that he is coming again in glory, where there'll be a new heavens and a new earth and death and pain and sorrow and illness will all be defeated and gone. And we will live forever in paradise with our God who has loved us and has forgiven us. Lord, we love your mercy. We celebrate your mercy together. In Jesus' name, amen.